Good morning, church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2, or just stay in your bulletin, because in the book of Hosea, as I explained last week, we're using the New International Version, which is a little less bracing in its language, this very explicit book. You can look at the Pew Bible if you wonder what I mean, but we're following Hosea 2 in the bulletin, the New International Version. And if you're new to us, we are studying through these small books at the end of the Old Testament called Minor Prophets. And this one is dated about 750 years before the birth of Christ. We're studying them in chronological order as they are moving closer to the coming of Jesus. We recently studied the book of Amos, which is one of the longer Minor Prophets. And uh, it's intense. Every chapter is uh, very severe warnings. It's a war, severe warnings of judgment against a, a nation that has been passive toward the poor and negligent in the worship of God and just uh, turned their back on the one who was good to them. The sins in Hosea's time are not much different But Hosea's story is very different. The nature of the book is very different. We found, as we do in every passage of Scripture, the grace of God pointed to ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's been, it was sometimes difficult to to point it out in the book of Amos. Here is no question in the book of Hosea. In fact, we will regularly be shocked, stunned by the grace of God. It's eye-rubbing realizations. Can this really be what I am reading about? Because it's a story, it's a, it's a dense story in terms of imagery, but at one level, at the meta level, at the higher level, is the story of God and his relationship with Israel and Judah and us by extension. At the same time, in and out, he weaves this story of his own troubled marriage to a woman who, though she was chaste when he married her, eventually became a prostitute. So with the expectation to meet with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a profound way, let me turn your attention to chapter 2, verse 1, or as it is printed for you in your bulletin. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I'll strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I'll make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, slay her with thirst. I'll not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me food and water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. But I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she'll say, I'll go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I'll take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I'll take my my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. 
So now I'll expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I'll stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I'll ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I'll punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot declares the lord therefore i am now going to allure her i'll lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her there i'll give her back her vineyards i'll make the valley of achor a door of hope There she'll respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I'll plant her for myself in the land. I'll show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I'll call to those called not my people. You are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Open our eyes to see you, Lord Jesus, in this Old Testament passage that we might find repentance and healing, restoration. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. Many of you have heard of the famous author C.S. Lewis. Others you may not have have heard of him, but you know of his movie or the books that were made into a movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and so forth, his children's books. But he was an Oxford professor who came to Christ as an adult and used his distinct literary gifts to share the good news of Christ in very clever form with essays and children's stories. While he was at Oxford, while, uh, and while at Oxford, he made friends with many students, and two of those students were Sheldon and Davy Van Auken. Sheldon and Davy Van Auken were literary students and eventually made their way to the United States, but before they did, because of interaction with C.S. Lewis, Davy became a Christian. Sheldon did not. That correspondence with C.S. Lewis continued after they moved to the States, but uh, Sheldon grew more and more jealous of his, of her, of his wife's savior. 
He said in the autobiography in which he describes the story, he, he said that uh, Jesus was an invasion to their, what he thought was a perfect marriage. He said their love was almost pagan, as he, a literary critic would say, that, that uh, they, they were so exclusive in their love. They idolized one another. And everything he thought was going just fine until Jesus messed everything up. He put it this way in his book. Though I wouldn't have admitted it even to myself, I didn't want God aboard. He was too heavy. I wanted him approving from a considerable distance. I didn't want me to be thinking of him. I wanted to be free. I wanted life itself, the color and fire and loveliness of life. And Christ now and then, like a love poem, I could read when I wanted to. I didn't want us to be swallowed up in God. I wanted holidays from the school of Christ. Sounds offensive, but he was honest. No matter how hard he tried to shut Jesus out of his life, Jesus wouldn't allow him to do so. He wouldn't let him alone. He continued to pursue him no matter how much he tried to resist him. That's the story of the book of Hosea told in very graphic form in, the, in their marriage too, Hosea and Gomer's. But it's a parable for the larger struggle of God with his people called Israel and Judah and the larger struggle of God with his people throughout the ages. And those God has mercy on, those who are gods, he continues to pursue and he will conquer them no matter what, no matter how hard we try to shut him out of our lives. God proves his extraordinary love for us in Jesus Christ by sending his Holy Spirit to pursue us relentlessly. And yet he does it in ways that are not always obviously loving. Just like we observe in this text, he pursues us for one with limits. He pursues us by limiting us. You see it in verses 6 and 8. They follow verse 5. That's in the, the middle portion of the left-hand column of the text printed for you in the bulletin. It's in verse 5 that we find out what Gomer did to her husband, Hosea. Their mother, he says, has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Reading between the lines, we infer that what he's talking about is there came a point in their marriage. Maybe they're struggling for money or who knows what, uh, what motivated her, but she wanted fine clothes and she, she, wanted, uh, she wanted, uh, pleasures that they couldn't afford or shouldn't afford. And when she couldn't get them, she turned her back on her husband and she said, I know how to get those things. I'll sell my body for them. And she turns her back on her husband and goes to these lovers, effectively becomes a prostitute, even conceives and bears two children with different fathers. And so Hosea responds in verse 6, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she can't find her way. He provides limits, locks her in her room. Puts thorn bushes in the way so she can't escape, metaphorically speaking, I'm sure. But it's also descriptive of what God does with his children when we are uh, bullheadedly pursuing things that he knows are not right for us. 
things that are going to distract, things that are going to detract, things that are going to dehumanize, things that are not for our best or counter to his will. He limits us. In the hand of a sovereign God, denial is a gift, is an expression of love. Well, sometimes I, I do love to go to zoos, and I, but uh, what I love about zoos is observing the people more than the animals. And I remember being often at the, the zoo in St. Louis where we once lived, and there was a section of the zoo called Big Cat Country, and there were lions and and uh, Bengal tigers and snow leopards and, and cheetahs and so forth. And, and uh, there were some cages that were left over from the World's Fair that had such fine mesh that the big cat could get right up there. You could put your hand there, but he couldn't reach through. There are other places that had a, a low rail. And uh, if you were determined enough, you could crawl over that rail and get on the precipice and look down at the Bengal tiger who would be right down there. And then if your foot slipped, he would have his lunch for the day. And on more than one occasion, I saw an all-knowing four-year-old who would, who would uh, pitch a fit. Because he would say, Mommy, Mommy, I want to crawl. I want to go see the kitty. No, you can't go see the kitty today. No, the kitty wants to see me. See the drool coming down his lips? They hear him purring? He wants to see me. He wants me to come play with him. No, you may not go see the kitty. It's, 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 it's dangerous. You're not going to go over there. I want to go see the kitty. I hate you. I hate you. I want to go over there. And here's the mother trying to reason with the four-year-old child. Don't waste your time. Throwing a fit, kicking, screaming. There were times, you know, I wanted to say, just let him go. It'll be quick. You can start over. Get somebody that's more cooperative. I didn't. I never said that. It's the way we treat God. Why didn't you give me that? I hate you. God alludes in this passage to the feast that he gives to the people of God, reminding them of all the blessings that he's given to them. Festivals of Passover, festivals of unleavened bread, festivals of, of, um, of the feast of weeks and tabernacles and all of them celebrated with the first fruit of their, of their increase, of their new lambs and the, the first sheaves of wheat and the, the oil and grain that he has provided. And he's reminding them, these are things you didn't have in the wilderness. These are things you couldn't produce in, in slavery. You have these things with which to celebrate because I've given them to you. He says in Deuteronomy 26, I've given them to you so that you can... You, you have these feasts so that you can rejoice in me, the one who has so blessed you. And yet when we don't get that thing or that promotion or that advancement or that award for our child or whatever it is, we don't get that. We say, how could you love me? And we throw a tantrum. But denial in the hand of a sovereign God is an act of love. So is rebuke. Verses two to four, his words are strong. Rebuke your mother. He is appealing to those who will turn to him. And then he's saying, turn to your brothers and sisters and rebuke them for living ungratefully before me. Rebuke is a gift. 
Bible says in Proverbs 3. We're studying the book of Proverbs in the evening service. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Correction, Solomon says, is the primary tool of wisdom, Proverbs 17. Wise people cherish rebuke, Proverbs 9, verse 8. Better open rebuke from a friend than the kisses of an enemy, Proverbs 27, verse 5. The denial that you may be experiencing right now in your life should not be interpreted as God's punishment or, 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 his, or his hatred of you. But rather, trust yourself to a sovereign God who denies you for your good. Who loves you like a loving mother resists a four-year-old child's insistence. Give me what I want right now. The other way he expresses love for us in a surprising way, a pursuing love for us, is this love of deprivation. Even love of defeat. But first I want you to understand that God, when God says, I'm going to defeat, I'm going to disrupt, I'm going to stand in the way. He doesn't do it in a cold, uh, impassable way. You see in verse 8, about midway down in your, the left-hand column, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Do you hear? Do you hear the pain of God in that expression? You hear the pathos of God pleading with his people. I have given you these things and you have turned on me. And so in verses 9 to 13... Toward the end of that left-hand column, he is saying, because I love you too much to let you continue to cycle down, to devolve into your, your self-serving ways, I'm going to defeat your efforts. I'm going to take away your grain, take away the wool, expose your shame, stop your celebrations, not because I'm cruel, because I love you too much to allow you to continue to go in that direction. Because to continue to live as an ungrateful person, to continue to live ignoring the God of grace is to be dehumanized. Years ago when we were pastoring in St. Louis, I went with uh, our children's ministry, took, uh, led an, an, an outreach among uh, families and children to uh, a nursing home in the inner city of, of St. Louis that was for the poorest of the poor. We went from room to room. It was the Christmas season. We were singing Christmas carols. And as we were walking down the hall, this dear lady motioned us into her room. She was an old African-American lady. I I inferred from what she described that she was probably born in the late 1920s or 1930s. And she said, gather around here, children. She had a contagious joy, contagious smile. She said, gather around my bed here, children. I want to tell you a story. 
He said, when I was a little bitty baby, my mother left me on the train platform at Union Station. Just left me there. This Jewish lady came along, single lady came along, picked me up and took me into her family. She was a rich lady. She'd never married. And her family said, you're a single woman. You don't need to be taken on a child. Who knows what you're getting? Who's going to marry you? Have this child and so on. But that woman, she said, took me into her home. She, she provided for me and she raised me. And when I was about a teenager... I did what teenagers do. She said, I decided I didn't want to live by her rules. And she didn't give me what I wanted one day. And I said, I'm going to run away. And she said, I did. And never saw my mother again. Oh, she said, Jesus found me. And he's going to get me to heaven. But for many, many years, I have wished that I could say to my mother, I'm so sorry and thank you for what you did for me. You could see through her tears, you could imagine the tears of her mother. And through her tears and imagining her mother's tears, I want you to imagine the tears of God who adopted you and me And we turned our backs on him and he he pursues us. And he will not let go of us until he captures us by his mercy. And restores us. You say, you promised us grace at the beginning of this message. We haven't heard it yet. Well, you've heard it. But you haven't seen it like you're about to see it. In verse 14, which is about the top of the right-hand column in your bulletin. There's a therefore that provides a transition. Therefore, I'm now going to do what? Remember a number of weeks ago in Gospel Priorities, one of our preachers said, when you see a therefore, you ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It provides some logical link to what has gone before. So if we look at what we've seen so far, here are these these uh, these ingrates, these rebels, these who have played the prostitute, just like Gomer, it's all being described the the way they've turned their back on God. So what would we expect, therefore, to transition to? Therefore, I will judge them. I will wipe them off the face of the earth. I will take away their salvation. But what does the therefore lead to? Therefore, I'm now going to allure her lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I'm going to give her back her vineyards, make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she'll sing. What is wrong with this Hosea? He's he's lost his logical mind. It, it would be as if you confront someone who has, who has stolen all your possessions and, and burned your house to the ground and you come to them and say, therefore, I'm going to give you a new house and new cars. It's a non sequitur. 
It's a logical leap. It doesn't make sense. But God says, I'm going to restore their relationship with me. I'm going to turn them back. He alludes to it earlier in the text, but he certainly says now I'm going to turn them back in such a way. Verses 16 and 17, they're going to call me no longer their enemy or their taskmaster, but they're going to call me their husband. I'm not, I'm going to take them away from the dehumanizing gods of the Baals in verse 17. I'm going to make them, I'm going to be faithful to them. I'm going to restore their identity. They're no longer going to be not mercy, but mercy. They're not going to be not my people, but my people. And they're going to call me their God. I am determined to accomplish that. I'm going to save them out of the valley of Achor and take them into the door of hope. What does he mean? Achor is trouble. I'm going to take them out of the valley of trouble. Lots of troubles happened in the valley of Achor in Old Testament battles. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. I'm going to take them out of this trouble and I'm going to bring them into a door of hope. How? Because of what Jesus would say. I am in trouble. My soul is troubled. He was deeply troubled. Again and again, the New Testament describes that. Jesus going through trouble, especially the trouble of being separated from God, taking our sin upon himself and our judgment that we might be ushered into as many as ask him for that righteousness and salvation. We might be ushered through a door of hope. That the valley of Jezreel later on in this text, which is scattering, it was become a valley of plenty. The scattering will be like the scattering of seed. I will cause new life to come. I'm going to restore them to a relationship with me. I'm going to restore their relationship with others. I'll make a covenant with them. And they will live in that covenant relationship with others. And not only so, I'm going to restore their relationship with the creation. That's the latter part of the, of the text. I'm going to make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, birds of the air, the creatures of the ground. I'm going to cause the earth to respond to the grain, new wine and oil. They'll respond to Jezreel. They'll, they'll bloom. I will plant her for myself in the land. I'll restore the relationship that was intended to be that of peace and flourishing between my people and the creation. And that's, a, that's a promise he is realizing through us now. Even as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Though it is a struggle. We heard from Jackie and Paul earlier. They're describing they're, they're going to a former country in the, of the Soviet Union. They're going to work with special needs children. They're bringing the kingdom of God to bear on earth as is in, in heaven with children who are rejected because of the worldview that so characterizes the country that they're in. And in a few more weeks, we're going to have a missions conference and missionaries are going to come from all over the world. And they're going to describe how the Lord is using them in various ways to bring shalom or healing or restoration on earth as it is in heaven. Not just saving souls, but breaking people out of cyclical poverty and so forth. And here's second prayers, what I want you to hear in that missions conference. That your colleagues with them. 
Every one of those places they go to is dangerous. There's a risk. And the place where we are right now is a mission field. It's dangerous. I feel it too. I feel the fear. Some of you he may call to other places. And that's God's call. But for now, God is calling us to mission here. And to pray for his resources to be brought to bear on this place. And to heal what is broken. To take this city back from those who are trying to terrorize it. And and, and he makes that promise in this text to say, wherever he called you, whether it's in Memphis or some other place or some place in the rest of the world, He is equipping you to bring the resources of King Jesus to bear on this place, that place where you are, to demonstrate the shalom of God. How has it been throughout history? How will it be that these missionaries will talk to and listen to at the missions conference? How do they do that? How do they go to those hard places or stay in hard places? It has to be looking in the face of this Savior who is abundant, illogical, crazy in his love for us to expend everything he has, even life itself, that we may be put back together for the praise of his glorious grace. One evening, Sheldon Van Auken woke up in the middle of the night and he he noticed that Davy wasn't in bed. He got concerned for her. He tiptoed down the staircase. He heard her voice as she was in the living room. She was kneeling at the sofa and she was praying through tears. She was begging God for the soul of her husband. She said, I want to live with Sheldon in heaven forever. Please save him. Lord, do whatever it takes. Even if it means taking me out of his life, I know where I'm going. I know I'll be in heaven. If you have to remove me to bring him to yourself, I offer myself to you. Within a year, Davy was diagnosed with cancer and died. Sheldon was furious, as you can imagine, at first. But eventually, in his book, A Severe Mercy, A Severe Mercy, he records that Jesus used that to bring him to salvation. He wrote several other books most of them having the word mercy in the title some way or another. One of those books was called Little Lost Marion and Other Mercies. Written about 30 years after Davy's death, and in it he tells a story of, that no one had known before, that Davy, before they were married obviously, at the age of 14, became pregnant. 
Her family rallied around her. They expressed their support for her. Her dad had died. She said her own words were she started running wild. They rallied around her. She had the baby. They entrusted it to the adoption process. Never heard from her again. But Sheldon was determined to find her. Tell her about her biological mother. He didn't know if she was a Christian or not. What happened to her in life? Finally, the adoption agency, after 30 years of trying, the adoption agency agreed to connect them. He wrote her a letter. He wrote Mary in a letter. He found out that she was married to a physician in San Francisco. And she wrote back eagerly. And she said this. When I received your letter, it was at once thrilling and scary, my heart pounding, almost breathless with discovery, unable to sleep till I'd read every word, excited beyond belief, sobbing, my pillow wet with tears. Seeing my mother as a young woman loving the things I loved, beauty, dogs, sails in the wind, music, I'd been starving for this, and now the book. I loved her love for you. And you're sharing in the incredibly wise things you did to protect your love and the piercing beauty of Christ coming into your lives. It's an expression of the breathless wonder that should characterize us every time we think about the infinitely dangerous an unmerited mission of Jesus coming for us. Move us to respond. Here I am, use me to tell the same story. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this pastor and these people say to you, we believe Help our unbelief. Oh, Lord, your grace is too good to be true. It doesn't seem to make sense. Especially when we are faced with such fears and so many enemies, so much opposition around the world and in our city in particular. Yet we yield ourselves to you and ask, lift up our heads. Encourage us, help us to look full into your wonderful face. And enable us to do whatever you are calling us to do. That we might see and hear the Lord Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have fought the good fight. You have finished the race. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.